Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. All right. At this point, it's going to be Kay and Clint and Liz. Slide this little phone console over here next to me. Push line number one and say, good morning, Kay. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. <laughs> um, I have several little oaks out in the pasture that the squirrels planted. Mm-hmm. And years ago, my husband built a fence around them with steel posts and everything to keep the cattle away to let them grow. <laughs> and they haven't grown that much, but they're, you know, they're up. But the little fences have been there so long that other things have come up in them. And I think there might be in one of them like a hackberry and another one. I know there's a weasatch. Okay. And I've tried to get several handymen to take them down. And even lately, the, the man that's leasing the pasture, and he said, oh, no problem. I'll just cut it off and dab a little bit of a remedy on that weasatch stump. Mm. And... I was just wondering what your opinion is, how to handle that. You want to kill your trees? Just use some remedy around them. That'll do it. I, I wish... Even if it's on the stump. Well, it, the stump. it you know, when it rains, it doesn't stay on the stump. Uh, remedy is one of these things that doesn't go away, that uh, as that stump rots away, it's still going to be, you know, there in the ground. It's just one of those what we call sulfonated urea herbicides that is very, very persistent in the environment. I wish I had an easy answer for you. Quite honestly, I'd rather use a little diesel on them, just knowing that the molasses will clean the diesel up. If you overdo it, you you know you would hurt the oak trees just like you would anything else. But uh, remedy is mixed with diesel. Uh, that's how they recommend that you apply it. And in my opinion, the diesel probably does more to kill than the remedy, but the remedy sure stays around a lot longer in the environment and continues killing, continues harming things that you really do not want to harm. So I'm afraid remedy would be my last choice. And how, how many trees are we talking out there, Kay? Oh, it's probably just about maybe three. And in my book, three trees, I can go out there once a year and cut down anything that's coming up around them in less than five minutes. And okay. <laughs> so, uh, okay. you know, you're, you're bringing out an Abrams <laughs> tank. <laughs> yeah, bringing out an Abrams tank to kill a mosquito. Um, I okay. don't think it's worth it. Okay. If. If I did put the diesel, would you, like, put it on, like, with a paintbrush or something? I would know. I would just pour it on, but I'd use a very small amount, maybe a cup or something like that. How big, you know, these we sets couldn't be too big, what, two, three inches in diameter maximum? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd say maybe a cup or something like that, and then I'd follow it up with a cup of molasses on top of that the next day, let the diesel do its job, and then the, let the molasses clean up the diesel or let the microbes that the molasses stimulate clean up the diesel, I guess would be a much more appropriate way to put it. Okay. All right. Well, thanks a lot. You've headed off a <laughs> well, catastrophe there. Well, you huh? know, I just, uh, there's just a lot of stuff out there that 
people, and unfortunately, I hate to say it, a lot of old-time farmers and ranchers, and I guess technically I would be one of those, but I learned a long time ago the dangers of this. I was just reading an article yesterday how Thailand is banning several of these things now from their entire company, things like Paraquat and Chlorpiferous and uh, Roundup. People are gradually waking up to how dangerous these things are. And what we've done, we've conveyed in, uh, we've traded convenience for some real severe environmental issues. And unfortunately, for people that don't think all the way through, convenience seems to win out a lot of times. And uh, uh, it just creates more problems down the road. Might solve one problem today and create three more down the road. So I'm very glad that you ask questions and uh, that you're interested in protecting your land and your trees. Okay. Well, thank you for helping us, too, it's to know all, what to do. So. It's always a pleasure. Wouldn't get up this early for anything less. <laughs> so you get out and enjoy this beautiful weekend. It's a little chilly out there this morning, but looks like this is going to be the prettiest day we've had in a week. So I hope you get out and enjoy it. I will. Thank Thanks, you Kate. A lot, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, uh, next up is Clint. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How you doing? I'm good. How about yourself? Good. Just a, a quick offshoot. Uh, couldn't you girl that we said tree y'all were just talking about? I That would be, you know, uh, that would be a very, very viable option. The reason I didn't suggest that is... Uh, She's got a some sort of fence, some sort of barrier put up around, and to girdle them, you've really you've got to go 360 degrees around that tree. And uh, I, I'm getting the feeling that that probably was not a viable option there. But you're entirely right. Girdling and waiting—that's uh, you know her ancestors two, three hundred years ago. That's how they cleared land. Uh, they girdle the trees, they'd go back the next year after the trees had died, take them out, and all of a sudden they had a new field. And uh, girdling is probably the single most effective thing, but it's not instant gratification. As you well know, you girdle, and then you wait several months before the tree even starts looking bad. But yes, sir, girdling would be a very viable option, provided that you can get to the trunk and get all the way around it. I've, I've used drywall uh, drywall. Whole saws, mm-hmm. girl stuff around the tree. I didn't want to get my chainsaw, but I'm right now waiting on a real recess tree to die that I've girdled for almost a year now. I'm waiting for it to fold up and die. <laughs> Probably it will drop its leaves this fall and then it just won't come out next spring. Go to sleep and not wake up, so to speak. I'm hoping. Yes, sir. What was the for the um, for the liquid? seaweed again for one gallon for the trees for, for trees uh the liquid seaweed for what purpose now for cold hardiness uh, the freeze prote- yeah, yeah for the cold hardiness. about about uh two two tablespoons of liquid seaweed per gallon of water sprayed on the foliage every couple of weeks it doesn't it, it's much slower acting if you put it in the ground i like liquid seaweed i don't know use most fertilizer products as a foliar spray, but liquid seaweed, I think, is most effective used as a foliar spray. So, yeah, two uh, two tablespoons to a gallon of water. You will make your plants more cold-hardy. You'll be giving them almost 100 different uh, nutrients in there. So liquid seaweed is just one of those little magical things that uh, it would be impossible to ever use too much of. 
Yeah, um, we, we get him benefit due every two or three days because I'm kind of behind the curve and getting it before <laughs> the freeze comes. No, sir, it's uh, uh, maybe once a week, but every two or three days you're wasting your time. You'll never, you know, you'll never do anything wrong. Those nutrients will become available um, to the plants eventually, but uh, it's uh, the law of diminishing returns is really in there. Making a second application three days later. Uh, will do very little. What you're trying to do, of course, is increase the, the amount of sugar in the sap, which is basically your antifreeze. And once you have maxed out the plant's potential to make these sugars, uh, putting a little more seaweed on is is not really going to gain you anything. Certainly not going to hurt anything, but uh, um, I think I'd probably put my effort into doing some other things. A maximum of once every week, and I think in all actuality, probably every two weeks is probably, you're pretty much going to get maximum benefits there. Now, the leftover, uh, how long does that keep in the sprayer if I use it all at one time? Um, you know, it it these compounds are not 100% stable, uh, at least not all of them are. So it will re- continue to have some effect, oh, for probably two weeks for a month down the road, especially if you use distilled water as opposed to your well water that's full of all sorts of things. So um, I would try to mix it fresh every time if you can. If not, it'll keep for probably a month and still have uh, a few beneficial effects, like I say, especially if you you know, go buy a 99-cent jug of distilled water instead of putting in our mineral-filled water. Uh, it'll last for, for a month or so, but it's it's kind of like what tastes better, fresh or leftovers. And uh, <laughs> those leftovers, you may get some nutrition out of them, but they sure don't taste quite the same a month down the road as they do the day they come out of the oven on most things. No, good note. And for your uh, your magic elixir for the cedar pollen that's fixing to come up how soon do we need to start drinking that cedar tea uh i'd say by the first of december at least wouldn't hurt by the 15th of november it's coming up pretty quickly okay and you recommend off the cedar tea per day i'm sorry your your phone's breaking up on me just a little bit there how much uh, well, what you're what you're doing is in effect making your concentrate, so to speak. You're uh, boiling your water, you're steeping your cedar leaves, and that's going to be your uh, concentrate. Beyond that, just maybe a dropper full of it in a cup of water or something that tastes a little bit better. Uh, about a dropper full every day or two. Good deal. I appreciate the time. You know, I always appreciate the call, Clint. I'm sorry, sir. Uh, Days I'm going to catch you at the nursery. I got a few pictures I want to help. (laughs) Well, Tuesdays and Thursdays are typically my days to be in the country uh, and not at the nursery. I do get, you know, spend a lot of time on the road buying plants and looking for good stuff. But uh, I look forward to seeing you there one of these days. And uh, you get out and have a great weekend in the meantime. Thanks, Clint. Uh, let's just keep going here. Liz and Bill will be my next two callers. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a question. I um, just bought a new house. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. And um, the yard, the front yard is small. The backyard is big. So in the front yard, they put two oak, uh, live oaks. Okay. Uh, so 
um, I've pulled them out because they're too big. So I'm thinking of a Lacey's Oak and a Crepe Myrtle. And um, I'm just kind of wondering if I could get your feedback on that. And whereabouts is your new home, Liz? Um, I'm over here um, just outside um, Government Canyon. Okay. And do you have deep soil or is your soil pretty shallow? Shallow. Okay. You don't want a Lacey's Oak. Uh, I love Lacey's Oak, but you can, if you were to walk up one of the uh, canyons, fields, whatever you want to call it on my ranch, I've got gorgeous lacy soaks when you get down to the field proper where I've got topsoil three, four, five feet deep, and you start up that hill, and as soon as that soil starts, you know, shrinking down where you've got a thin layer, lacy soaks just stop growing. Uh, they are a wonderful tree if you have deep soil. I would suggest looking at the Monterey oak, what they call the Mexican live oak, which is a, it's actually a smaller statured tree than the Lacey's oak, resistant to oak wilt, um, semi-evergreen, a really, really good tree, and I think that would be a far superior tree to the Lacey's oak um, in your situation. Now, if you had deeper soil, I tell you, Lacey's oaks are absolutely wonderful. Uh, crepe myrtle, big crepe myrtle, uh, that's a fine choice where you've got some sunshine and uh, beautiful tree. If you want something that doesn't get as large, you know, you can always consider mountain laurel. You consider red bud. There are a number of shorter statured trees that I think would be, <laughs> as you do, okay. a much more appropriate tree than a giant live, two giant live oaks in a little front yard. That's, uh, that's people that don't look very far down the road that only think about uh, that today. Right, um, and I've got them. I pulled them out, and I got them in some buckets. I'm trying to find somebody who will take them. Um, the other question is, I have on the property, I have a huge backyard, so um, one of the trees back there is a mesquite. Mm -hmm. And I went and I took a look at it much closer, and it looks like um, it's actually been hit by lightning. Uh -huh. um, and it's actually probably many years ago because it's actually starting to close, but I can see the burn marks in it. Sure. And I can actually see some burn marks um, still up in the branches. Now, the, um, I'm wondering, I like um, the way it looks. Uh -huh. um, it's very natural. So how do I take care of this mesquite? It does have a few dead branches, or do I need to do anything to it? You don't need to do anything. Funny you should bring up mesquite, because I was with one of our county commissioners earlier this week who was concerned about a big old partially hollow mesquite in front of a you know county building, and people were telling them, oh, it's going to fall down. It's you know got some hollow in it. The latest research uh, from the uh, arboriculture paper, the American Association or the International Association of Arboriculture, is showing that a hollow tree, all things considered, is 80% as strong as a tree that has no hollow in it. So uh, the trees are not weakened nearly as much as we once thought they were. And mesquite is one of the toughest trees out there. And if you like the way it looks, you know, it'll, uh, it might look a little nicer if you take the dead wood out of it, but that's like trimming your hair or your fingernails. Tree's not even going to know you've taken the dead wood out, but if it, uh, if it would improve the appearance, go right ahead. And no reason to paint any wounds, no reason to do anything beyond that. Uh, the one thing that you are going to have to be aware of is that mesquites are to some extent like the hill country cedars the ash juniper you start taking too good care of them they die they like being abused so to speak they love you know they don't mind the drought they don't mind the heat so 
Uh, don't go and plant something at the base of them that you're going to be out there watering three times a week or the mesquite's <laughs> going to be very unhappy with you. But if you can basically leave it alone and you enjoy that look of a hill country tree, you don't even have to worry. Those of us out in the country worry about new mesquites coming up everywhere. But mesquites actually produce something in the roots that keeps the seeds from of the mesquite from germinating. So I'm just going to leave that tree alone and enjoy it. Okay, that sounds like my kind of tree. <laughs> Something that takes care of itself. <laughs> yes. Now I am, um, I got a feeling um, I bought the wrong kind of tree. I bought a crepe myrtle, uh, I'm sorry, I bought a mountain loom from my backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have an irrigation system, and it wasn't until after I bought it that I realized maybe those two don't go very well oh, together. The, the, um, your mountain laurel will be... Your Mount Laurel will be very happy with the irrigation system so long as you set it properly to where it waters thoroughly once a week and doesn't come on and water, you know, over and over and over every day of the week or whatever. I just, I guess the sprinkler people want you to see that system work and feel good about all that money you spent. But uh, Mount Laurels do just fine under irrigation, but just don't plant something that requires a, you know, a large, large quantity of water. Don't plant coleus. Don't plant impatience. Uh, don't plant mm-hmm. things like that right underneath that tree. But, uh, no, Mount Laurel's going to be just just fine with your sprinkler system because with the price of water these days, I promise you, once you get your first water bill, you're going to become conservative on your water usage. Your Mount Laurel's going to be fine. Yeah, that's right. And um, I, in all this process of moving, I haven't got my rain barrel set up. And I said, darn, I missed a lot of rain yesterday. <laughs> you can only, there are only so many hours in the day. So <laughs> life's all about learning to prioritize and do the most important things first. I will have those rain barrels out of storage and ready to go for the next rainstorm. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of Thank people so were much. were beating themselves up a couple of days ago saying, man, what a rain. What, four inches different places? We didn't get nearly that much in uh, the hill country. But congratulations on your new home and call us if you have questions. We're always here to help you. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, uh, next up is Bill. Good morning, Bill. Oh, good morning, Bob. I'm the better late than Neville Bill. <laughs> yes, sir. And I'm way behind now, but I got another question I need to know. Okay. I've got a I've got a beautiful live oak tree that my grandson's planted. It's, it's taller than the two story building I live in. Okay. And it's uh, almost fifty feet wide, forty five feet wide. Yes, sir. And high. Uh, the, the grandsons planted it in all my pots when I lived in a townhouse, mm-hmm. and I kept pulling them up and pulling them up, and I finally left one go uh, in a half whiskey barrel. And when I bought a new house uh, in '04, '05, uh, out here in Northwest San Antonio, mm-hmm. and I bought one that had about a one inch uh, uh, setup, and it was about six, seven. It was about five or six feet tall. Yeah. And I dug spent three days digging that black dirt out of there. Yes, sir. Um, and I got it planted, and it's grown greatly. Now, he's getting married, and I thought, and since I got a lot of acorns, that uh, the wedding present might be sending him a few acorns off of the tree. He planted that long ago. Yeah. And the question is, they live in St. Louis. Uh-huh. Will it go? No, probably not. Probably a little oh. too cold for it up there. Um, 
Uh, you could certainly, if you have room, start another one or two and uh, plan them in honor of his marriage, plan them in honor of his, uh, you know, grandkids-to-be or whatever, but uh, you don't see a lot of live oaks up around St. Louis. I, um, is, oh, is, okay. You know, weather just gets a little too chilly up there. Oh, okay. Well, uh, that goes that thought. thought. Uh, I'll just... Uh, get a brass plaque and put it on mine. There you and go. Send him a picture of it. That sounds like a good thing. All right. Well, let's get started over here. And Jane is up first. Good morning, Jane. Good morning. Hey, yeah. I got a question. I got myself and I got friends, and we want to get rid of our mixes of grass and weedy forbs. They're mostly dead due to the drought, but some are greening back up because of the recent rain. <laughs> right. And we want to do this now because we want to get ready for spring planting or for later planting. So how would we go about doing that? Well, what are you planning to plant where the the weeds are dominating right now? What is your intent to plant in spring? Okay, I got two answers for that because one's for me and one's for my friend. Okay. okay. All right. Now, since I'm a good person, I'm going to talk about my friend first. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to put in her area, we're going to put in her area some, you know, we really want to designate some plants. We want to put in a mixes of annuals and perennials so she gets some color. Mm -hmm. She likes them colors of purple and orange and blue. So we're going to do some definite planting for her. Okay. That ain't not what I go to do for me. So what do we got to do for her first? Well, you know, basically most most of our native weeds, other than Bermuda grass, Bermuda grass is, I mean, nuclear weapons to take that stuff out. But I wouldn't worry about doing a whole lot more than just cutting them down to ground level because weed killers, whether, I hope you don't go with the nasty stuff, but even with no, that stuff, no. they e even that doesn't work against dry foliages uh there's nothing out there natural or bad stuff that you know goes into the ground and safely kills the root system so i think you're wasting your time to do much more than just mow that stuff off low to the ground now if it were still august and you'd ask me this question i'd tell you about solarizing i'd tell you about putting down black plastic and things like that but um I, your friend's going to have a few weeds to deal with, but it's not going to be, you know, that bad. Now, are you looking at making raised beds or bermed up areas or just uh, improving the soil as it lies to start planting? And I can think of a lot of beautiful blues and purples and other things you can plant out there. Um, but, but are you going to change the contour of the ground to plant any of this, I guess is how I would put it. Well, okay, so my friends live in Austin, okay? Uh -huh. Yep. And and she got she we're gonna do this a phase at a time and sure. she, we was thinking that we would do it the least expensive way. So initially I personally was thinking, don't change the contour, just improve the quality of the soil she got. And that works and that works just fine. All you're gonna have to buy to do that is compost and a little bit of fertilizer. So I'm going to tell you, other than anything that is really big or woody, go after it with a grubbing hoe. Otherwise, just mow things off to ground level. Go ahead and put a layer of compost. I get out there, I designate where these beds are going to be. 
Uh, and if you're looking at how to shape them, you get out a garden hose, you move it back and forth until you get the shape and contour you like, and then you put in some little stakes or whatever and say, okay, this is where my new flower bed's going to be. Cover that up with a couple of inches of compost, and that's going to soften the soil. That's going to smother a lot of the weeds that are there. And if you do that this time of year, you're going to be amazed at how good that soil is next spring when uh, you know, you're ready to start putting some things in the ground. So I, I'm just going to you know, spend a little time deciding what I, where I want to have all this new color and beauty out in the yard. And then I'm going to put a couple inches of compost over it and, uh, uh, and just kind of sit back and wait for spring. I just think you're looking at spending money and effort that you're not really going to gain a whole lot more by doing more than that. I would mow it off real low to the ground first. And like I say, if there's <clears throat> anything big coming up, I'm going to chop it off an inch down with a grubbing hoe. But a lot of this stuff is actually totally dead and it some of it's going to come back from seed unless you put enough of a layer on top of the soil that it blocks the sunlight where those seeds don't get sun they don't come up so let's don't make this any any more work than we have to okay so don't even put no mulch on it then just well i would use compost in lieu of mulch i mean mulch is fine but uh mulch is going to suppress the weeds compost is going to soften the soil feed the soil and suppress the weeds all at once and it's only slightly more expensive than a good mulch. So I'm just going with straight compost. Okay. And then we just watch and see if, you know, I know she got, everybody got some of that dead burned Bermuda. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah. So if that come on up, then we just deal with that in the warmer weather. We spot treat that with the vine, the vinegar and, and orange oil. And that's compost. about all you can do. It's you, you, right. There's nothing you can do this time of year that's going to do much more than that. So tell me okay. about your area now. Okay, now me, after I do what you just said in my area, then I, what I want to put in is a mix of wildflowers and native grasses. Okay. Now, I already got some of this coming up. I got some real nice native grasses. You know, mm-hmm. I got that Texas winter grass, and sure. I like it just fine. And I got um, some of that, um, the witch grass, you know, them bunch grasses. Yeah. So I, what I really like, the grass I really like and want to know if I can get started here in San Antonio is that seat muley. I just love that stuff. Oh, yeah. It'll do just fine. But uh, I'm not going to tell you to put out compost because compost is a natural pre-emergent. And you need to get your wildflower seed planted. You need to get that planted real soon. And you don't want to suppress your wildflowers in your efforts to suppress the weedier things out there. So... For now, all I'm doing is planting wildflowers. Uh, you might want to mow things down first. If you've got too much Texas wintergrass started, uh, you can go ahead and spray with a little vinegar and orange oil to kill that stuff back so it's not so thick because that's the biggest threat to your wildflowers is having that stuff come up so thickly. Wildflowers don't compete with the uh, warm season grasses, but the cool season grasses do compete. But uh, I'm I'm not putting out compost. I'm not doing too much to improve the soil because that's going to reduce your chance to get much in the way of wildflowers. So we'll talk about we'll talk about some composting things late next spring. But for now, all I really want you to do is to mow and plant your wildflower seed. Now, what about my my um, native grasses? What can I add now? Um, 
not much of anything. Uh, you know, February or so is going to be the time to go to Douglas King or somewhere like that and get some more native grass seed to plant around. But um, I, at this point, uh, I'd, I'd be planting your wildflower seeds. I'd be planting the native things. And you can get straight, you know, varieties, or you can get a nice mix of hill country uh seeds uh doug skiing offers you a lot of different choices there but again that's something i'm going to do in february uh not in november okay and so you just and you don't do none of the bunch grasses either right now no i you know mother nature's doing that but mother nature can make millions of seeds whereas you know you want to buy hundreds of seeds and uh, I, but I, I'll say once again, I would get your wildflower seed planted pretty soon. Right now, most folks around had at least some rain, you know, the past few days. So this is perfect time for getting your wildflower seed out. Okay. Now I wanted to ask you, I got another friend, she's 91 here in San Antonio. And she, she tell me, Jane, I need to get rid of this patch of Bermuda grass. Mm-hmm. And I, what nuclear option can I use? Tell her to move. <laughs> <laughs> this time of year, unfortunately, there's not much you can do. I mean, she could try to dig up anything she can, but uh, the way, the most efficient way to kill Bermuda grass is by solarizing it. We only do that in the when we've got some heat because we want to heat that soil up to 180 degrees and not happening once we get to the end of October. So uh, pretty much live with it through the winter months, and then we'll take it on next spring when the soil, when the weather starts to warm up. If she wants to do one thing now, she could uh, cover it up with some cardboard or even newspaper several layers thick, put some mulch on top of that to hold it in place. But uh, there's there's no way you're going to eliminate the Bermuda grass unless you you know dig a hole three feet deep and haul all the dirt off and bring in new dirt, and we're not going there. All right. Now i got one more question for you. Okay. All right. I got those dead burn free roaming cats all over my neighborhood. Uh-huh. And I I got birds. Mine's a wildflower sanctuary. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, right. so how am I going to get rid of them cats? Well, uh, that's, you know, that you're dealing with nature there. Uh, there are various things that cats don't like the smell of, and every cat is different. Uh, your veterinarian may have a product called Feel Away, like Feline Away. Uh, the folks at uh, Liquid Fence make a dog and cat repellent. Uh, some folks are able to keep cats out simply by uh, putting out the essential oil of lavender. Cats don't like the smell of lavender. But um, when you have uh, you know a feral cat population, you're never going to keep them all out. You need to keep those feeders up off the ground. You need to try to get rid of as much low vegetation where the cats can hang out and try to ambush the birds. But uh, there's some repellents out there. But like I say, what works on one cat doesn't work on the next. So try a variety of repellents and see which one does the best at keeping them out and um, then get in the habit of spraying that around a little bit more. And I guess there's no way I can plant enough lavender to keep them out, huh? Not really. Lavender's not the easiest thing to grow. Uh, uh, the price of that, you might as well put up what they call cat fencing, which is uh, many people put it up to keep cats in, but I guess you could also put it up to keep the cats out if you really wanted to go to that that uh, much trouble. Now, should I look for that on the Internet? 
Because honestly, Bob, I've done everything, you mm-hmm. know. I've, I, you know, and I feed my my. I don't feed my birds. My birds got all them native oh, yeah. plants. All yeah. I need to do is put a little water out for them. Probably, probably talk to your vet. Probably talk to a feed store. But it's uh, it's called cat fencing, and it's not obtrusive or obnoxious. It's just uh, fencing constructed in a way that the cats can't go over it or through it. Uh, you might even call, um, um, oh, golly, who are the people that uh, um, uh, can't, oh, Bark, not Barkbusters, but the uh, there there is a company that, you know, makes some things for keeping dogs contained. But uh, what you're looking for is called cat fencing. I'd start with your veterinarian. I'd start with a good feed store. Okay, thank you a whole bunch. Always a pleasure. Good to talk to you, Jane, and we'll talk again. Good morning, Michael. Michael, you there? Uh, Michelle, Michelle. Okay. (laughs) Very good. Good morning, Michelle. Okay, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? Good. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I've I've did pecans every fall. I found a tree that has these exceptionally big pecans. Okay. If I take one of those and plant it, will it produce the same size pecans? Maybe. Um, when you plant any plant from a seed, you're getting half the genetics of the tree it came from and half the genetics of the tree wherever the pollen came from that blew onto that tree. And no matter what the situation, you're going to wait 10 years before that tree is mature enough to produce pecans. So we're waiting a long time. There's... There is a chance that it will be better than the parent. There's a chance it will be worse than the parent. Uh, There's probably a fair chance that it will be as good as the parent. But if you're really wanting, you know, that that particular pecan, I would be thinking, do you have any other pecans in your yard? Do you have any other pecans around? Yes. I would think about grafting you know, a piece of this giant pecan uh, onto the your existing pecans is not that difficult to do. You bypass the maturing time frame, and um, uh, it's, it's certainly a lot more certain that you will get exactly what you're looking for. Planting things from seed is fun, uh, and there's always a chance that you're going to get something that's better than the parent it came from. But in pecans, it's a long wait before you get to figure out what you've got. Okay, so grafting, does that change the whole tree or just parts of the tree? That only when you graft a, um, you know, a piece of this giant pecan onto the tree, everything that grows from that point will be the other variety, but it doesn't spread back and change the genetics of the existing tree. Now, they they do different things. Sometimes they do a type of grafting, usually called whip grafting, where they will choose a limb on your existing pecan about the same size as the piece you're going to graft onto it. They sometimes do cleft grafting, where they will cut a limb way back, and this limb may be three inches in diameter or something, and then they put their little small new graft in there and let that grow out. But the only part, uh, and it's not to say that they can't go over, you know, whichever pecan this is you're grafting onto, and graft ten limbs instead of one for a grafter that knows what he's doing, and that's not me. I know how to do it, but I'm not fast, but an experienced grafter 
can do a graft in probably two or three minutes or less. So you could graft 10 limbs on that uh, tree, and therefore most of the tree would probably be producing the big pecans. But the the limbs that you graft onto don't change. It's just simply you're putting a you're starting a whole new plant where you graft it onto the old plant. And um, uh, but anyway, that's that's the only way that you're going to be guaranteed to get the super. That's probably imperial or one of these varieties that came out a few years ago. That some of them are giant pecans. The other precautionary thing that I would tell you is that the bigger pecans don't fill out they don't you know fully fill up the shell with meat unless we have good weather conditions and a lot of people planted years ago a variety called western schley which is really long pecan only to find out that in the hill country that pecan rather rarely fills more than halfway out uh, of the pecan so might want to ask somebody that knows pecans, and I'd, I'd call Fanix. They're probably the most knowledgeable old, old Grandpa Eddie Fanix that started the nursery 80 years ago. He actually bred several new pecan varieties. And so uh, um, it's your chances are good of having a tree that will produce big, meaty pecans, but it's by no means guaranteed. You can very definitely graft this variety onto your tree and your tree certainly has the rootstock to support it but whether that bigger pecan produces consistently year after year that's going to be a matter of weather and um i think we've probably both lived in texas long enough to know that, that there's nothing constant about texas weather yeah okay i appreciate it and you you'll probably want to you know talk to a grafter the one thing that that you need to know about grafting uh, woody trees like pecans um, is that you don't just take the cutting off of one tree and graft it onto the other tree. You harvest your wood that you're going to graft. You take the wood from the giant pecan and you put it into cold storage around the 1st of December and you don't actually do the grafting until later in the spring when the sap is starting to rise, so to speak. So you'll need to prepare at least a couple of months in advance by harvesting the graft wood, by wrapping it up in moist paper towels, putting in plastic bag in the refrigerator, not the freezer. But uh, it's something you don't put off until you're actually ready to do the grafting. You harvest and chill your graft wood for at least a couple of months in advance of actually doing the grafting. <laughs> well, it's it's a fun thing, but it's uh, it's more complex than most people realize. But uh, go for it. Uh, there are plenty of good grafters around. Extension Service can probably give you some names, and uh, I look forward to uh, that first big pecan pie. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Appreciate the call. All right, Paul is up next. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Bob. It's a beautiful day. Oh, it is a beautiful day. It's going to be a gorgeous day if that wind stays down and i think we'll have a little breeze but uh this will probably be our prettiest fall day yet i agree um bob you a week or two ago you talked about overseeding a lawn mm-hmm. and then wanted some advice on that uh as far as preparation i'm thinking about doing that uh moved into a neighborhood <laughs> about five years ago uh-huh. and um unfortunately i was one of the last houses built in this neighborhood and <laughs> i got the leftovers as far as uh, the lawn <laughs> okay and i have two different types of bermuda grass uh-huh and so um 
I was thinking about the overseeding that you spoke about, and I'm interested in uh, preparation. You mentioned uh, the best time would be May for the overseeding. No, no, no. Let's let's back up a second. Okay. Overseeding means to plant a grass, you know, that will come up and give you nice green growth through the winter months. Okay. Uh, and if that's what you're looking to do, you can do that this afternoon. It needs to be done, you know, this time of year, and it comes up almost uh, overnight. You'll you'll have green grass growing within a week's time. Okay. If you want to improve your existing grass, if you want to plant a better strain of Bermuda in there, that's what we're going to do next May. But over and and you'll do that again just by scattering seed. But traditionally, when people talk about overseeding, they're talking about creating a green lawn for the winter, uh, and you know that's something you can do immediately. And the only preparation you really need to do is just mow your existing grass and. Um, <clears throat> You want your you want your rye seed. You're going to plant some form of rye. You want that to be able to make good, you know, soil contact. I might even think about uh, uh, seeding or sowing my rye seed, and then not with a grass catcher or anything, but maybe after that, go through and mow down any any parts of your existing Bermuda that are uneven or not attractive or whatever. If the grass is relatively thin, mow first. I just want to be sure that you're you're overseeding ryegrass seed gets down to the soil underneath so they can sprout and grow and like i say it'll it'll be green in a week and you'll have a beautiful yard in two to three weeks yeah i i think i i misspoke yeah i'm I'm interested in um putting down uh like a a better quality uh grass seed right and that we will that we will do next spring when the soil's good and warm yeah is there anything i can do to prepare my lawn right now i just put down fertilizer and i put down some dry molasses uh i've I've heard you mention about composting if you've if you've got the time and energy that half inch layer quarter inch layer compost is going to do more than any single thing you could do to improve that soil and get you ready for next spring in fact it may make your existing bermuda come out so nice that you you know, decide maybe you don't need to replant as much seed as you thought you did. But uh, the fertilizing is good. Dry molasses is excellent. But if you want to do one more thing, it'd be putting down that thin layer of compost over the areas that you really want to improve. Mm-hmm. Uh, I live on the southeast side of town, and mm-hmm. the soil over here is quite sandy. Yes, sir. So the only dark dirt that I have is what was provided with the, the pieces of, uh, of sod that went down. Right. Um would, would would it be better uh, for me? I, I, I was thinking to put down uh, a layer of topsoil. No, sir. Not unless you want weeds like you've never seen before. Okay. My old buddy Alton Green used to tell me there's something wrong with topsoil if it's not full of weeds. And um, sand's just fine for Bermuda. I mean, you grow Bermuda grows better in sand than it does in uh, hard black clay. It's I just see. you've got to provide it with a little bit extra water. You've got to provide it with a little bit of extra nutrient. But uh, sand's probably the best medium you could ever grow Bermuda grass in. If you were to take on a project like I'm discussing right now, uh, what type or what brand of Bermuda seed would you recommend? There are a couple of good ones. I would call Dean over at Douglas King Seed. He's over in your southeast part of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blackjack is uh, has always been one of the preferred varieties. There's another one called Riviera. 
But uh, to my knowledge, blackjack is probably the toughest, best uh, Bermuda out there right now. But uh, I'm I'm not in the grass business. Dean is, and he can tell you if there's anything better than blackjack that's come along. But uh, knowing what I know now, I'd, I'd probably point you toward blackjack. I see. Um, need a little bit of advice on trees. I have uh, three live oak trees. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've done my due diligence as far as uh, exposing the root flare. Good. Yeah. And I've never trimmed them. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, I've dealt with arborists, and they say, just leave those live oak trees alone. Uh, but I heard you mention maybe I could just cut back, but uh, but don't uh, go all the way to the root. of. Uh, and basically, I want to clean up the, the, the trunk a little bit. Sure. Um, well, what kind of advice would you give me? Well, uh, I, I will that? tell you, you're, you're certainly you're not helping the tree. Uh, you're simply making it look nicer. You're making it look like Paul wants it to look. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is all cosmetic. So with that in mind, um, you trim wherever, however you like. Be sure <clears throat> that you understand that when you cut off a limb, don't ever leave a stub sticking out. But you want to come out beyond what we call the branch collar. If you look where that limb comes out, you'll notice that where the very base of the limb coming off the trunk or coming off the other limb, there's sort of a different looking little ring all the way around. That's the branch collar, and you're going to cut just outside of that, which means you're probably going to be cutting uh, three-eighths of an inch to a half an inch away from the trunk itself. With live oaks, be sure that you seal that wound. doesn't have to be pruning paint. It can be just old latex spray paint what a lot of people use but uh now is a good time of year to do it uh, of course there's some common sense things like if you're cutting a big limb make the first cut some distance out so that it doesn't fall and strip a lot of bark off as one of my arborist friend tells me that's the worst thing you can do is be cutting up next to the tree the limb breaks and starts to fall and rips a big chunk of bark off the side of the tree bad stuff you don't want to do that you want to make that first cut 18 inches out away from the trunk so that when you make your your cut up to the branch collar that you've just got a relatively short piece to take off there and there's no danger of it falling and stripping the trunk does that make sense it sure does yeah beyond that i got bob i really appreciate your help you be super super careful and if you even crosses your mind that yeah maybe this is a little dangerous then quit it and get somebody to give you a hand with it because uh there are too many injuries uh from People like me who get up on ladders that shouldn't be very far up on ladders. <laughs> so you call me any questions you have, Paul. Always here and enjoy talking to you. Thanks a lot, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Bye. But the ladies up first. Good morning, Ann. Good morning, Bob. How Good. are you doing today? Uh, it's just going to be a wonderful day out there. <laughs> uh, Bob, I'm calling about uh, corn gluten meal. And when it's, when it's is it cool enough now to put that out? If you want to use corn gluten meal, yes. Um, I, corn gluten meal is will deliver mixed results to you. Uh, and it's important to understand that corn gluten meal does not kill seeds. It prevents developing seeds once they germinate. It keeps them from forming a root system. And if we don't have, you know, lots of moisture, they dehydrate and die. But 
it's it's always going to be kind of a mixed bag. You're never going to stop all of the weed seeds because six weeks from now, that corn gluten meal is going to be totally digested, and anything that comes up after that point is not going to be affected by it. But uh, um, So if you're really intent on making that your primary defense against weeds, you're going to start now and you're going to reapply it every four to six weeks you know, through the winter months. Um, mm-hmm. Depending on the severity of the problem, my personal experience is that a layer of compost does as much good as a corn gluten meal and has a lot of other benefits. And always remember that once your basic grass, Bermuda, St. Augustine, Zoysia, whatever, once it browns out for the winter, and of course Bermuda and Zoysia always do, St. Augustine does if we get some you know, more significant cold, but you can always go back with your vinegar and orange oil, spray and kill the green weeds without hurting your basic grass. So if you choose to use corn gluten meal, and there, there are no negatives about it because it's a good fertilizer in addition to other things, now is the time to be putting it out, but don't set your expectations too high because it uh, some years it's very effective, most years it's partially effective, some years it doesn't work at all. So I, I, I just want to keep your expectations realistic. No negatives about it, but it's, it's sure not a guaranteed 100% control for weeds. Would it be good to use both? Um... I don't, if you're going to use a compost, I don't think the corn gluten meal is really going to bring much extra to there. Uh, if you want to put it out, you can, but it's, uh, if, if this were 15 years ago when corn gluten meal was cheap, 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 yeah, I'd use it for all sorts of things. But once they figured out that they could start putting it in feed stuff in China and places like that, the price quadrupled on it. And it's just not a low cost commodity anymore. So certainly not going to hurt but you're not going to get double the benefit putting them together. Okay. And and if it rains during that, you know, four to four weeks or so between putting it out, does that uh, undo or, or does it ruin it for that if period? It, if it rains, you know, once a month, if it rains once every three weeks, not going to have any impact at all. Uh, if it moves into where it's just constantly misty, drizzly, uh, mm-hmm. the, the little germinating weed can sit there without roots for a long time, and that will totally inhibit its, uh, you know, its pre-emergent capability. But, you know, anybody wants to gamble on Texas weather, you know, it's a losing proposition. And I never use the word normal in Texas weather. In a typical year, that's not going to happen. But I've seen plenty of winters when uh, it just turned gray and drizzly and all for a more extended period of time. And that yeah. will keep your corn gluten meal from working. Okay. Well, you've answered my question, and I appreciate it very much. And it's my pleasure to do so, and. Get out and have a good weekend, and we'll talk again. David's next. Good morning, David. Good morning. Morning, sir. How you doing, sir? I'm well, thank you. Sir, I got a question. You got my curiosity about compost. Yep. Can I can I use that on oak trees? I would not pile it up against the trunk, but out over the root zone, it's ideal for all types of trees. Oak trees love it, but never pile anything around the trunk of the tree. Out over the root zone, yeah. Great, great stuff. Okay, so you would use it for uh, crepe myrtles as well? 
<laughs> I can't think of a plant that I wouldn't use it on, except maybe some very cactus and, you know, agave and really xeric stuff that don't really like that. But uh, standard trees, shrubs, perennials, um, I, you go for it. Your plants will love you for it. Okay, so you were also talking about to another gentleman about cutting the limbs. Do cutting the lower limbs on uh, maybe a 15-foot live oak, does that help its growth no. faster? Or no. That's a, just a myth. That's just a myth. And the more okay, bare then. trunk you have exposed, the more susceptible that tree is to storm damage. And, you know, obviously you don't want limbs coming out real low where you're going to whack your head on them. But even those, until that tree gets to be six inches in diameter, don't cut them all the way off. Cut them back to where they're 18 inches long because the more foliage you have up and down the trunk, everywhere you have leaves, it's like a little sugar factory pumping good stuff back into the trunk of the tree. So you can, you can trim those limbs back, but even the ones you're eventually going to cut off, but don't take them all the way off until that trunk's maybe six inches in diameter or you're actually going to slow the growth of the tree down and make for a weaker tree in the long run. Yeah, that's that's awesome uh, information. I appreciate it very much. That's all I have for you, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling, David. Great question to all ask. Right. Everybody appreciates it. All right, back to gardening, back to the phone lines. My gem that's on a 210 area code. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Morning. Hey, I... I'm trying to uh, strain my memory here, which is difficult, uh, <laughs> about how to make the uh, the tea for cedar. Yeah. Um, As I recall, it, it was like a cup of those leaves and a quart of water, and then you put a teaspoon or a tablespoon in a glass of water after you make the tea. Well, that's about right. Boil your water. Don't boil the cedar leaves, and it makes no yeah. difference whether they're from a male or female tree. Boil your water, put the green in, let it steep, and, you know, steep until it's uh, quite cool, and then simply pour the liquid off, strain out all the, you know, extraneous material, and keep that in your refrigerator as your stock solution. Yeah. And then is it a teaspoon or a tablespoon? It's it's more like a teaspoon or even a little less. Some people just say an eyedropper full. Oh, okay. And then for how long? A week? Ten days? Two weeks? Uh, Probably a month. If you hate cedar fever as much as most people do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And and the tea will stay good in the refrigerator it that certainly long? should. You can always brew some fresh if you need to. That's true. Okay. I hope I'm not too late to do this. <laughs> no, sir. I think you're probably right on time to do it. And uh, uh, I will tell you also that if uh, you have any other problems or it's not as effective, I tell you, Rhonda Bone over at Rhonda's Nature's Way told me about something called seasonal allergy relief that just, I don't usually have allergy issues, but uh, had some last year, and that stuff worked like a miracle for me. So you do your part, and if you need any backup help, I'll send you the right direction. All right, sir. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Jim. Thank you, sir. Uh, Goodbye. All right. uh, Let's at least get started with my other Jim. Good morning, sir. Yeah, it's Tim. Tim. Okay, very good, Tim. Yeah. Uh, inquiring, have you heard about a uh, cut ant uh, product called A-N-T-I-X Plus, Antix Plus? Uh, that is a new one on me. I'll have to look that one up. Uh, do you know which company makes it, who it's by? No, I don't. I, I had, this is anecdotally. Uh, it's a antifungal. Uh-huh. And, and you, the ants carry it into the hole. Right. And, uh, into their chamber uh, where they're growing the fungus. Right. Right. 
and uh, but you rec- uh, it requires a license to to, to use it. Ah, that, not over the counter. Yeah, that makes me wonder if it's uh, something that I would want to be doing. That's basically what we're doing when we're putting sulfur on top of the mounds because sulfur is very antifungal, but. Uh, anything that requires a licensed applicator permit, uh, it's probably probably pretty toxic. Yeah. Well, I've been doing the the uh, sulfur, and they're still there. So, uh, kind of, what what I do next? You know, I'm not going to let the whole garden go sure. because of that. Well, it's not organic, but I'll tell you one thing that some people, you know, have tried successfully. You know how they make the mound and have that big underground chamber is moving out toward the center, take a broomstick, a piece of big rebar or something, poke a hole in the top, and take one of these room foggers and simply set it off, turn it upside down where it's pointed into the mound, put a garbage bag or something over the top to hold the fumes in. And that's not organic, but it's uh, it's a whole lot better than something that's too toxic, something that will go away. And as destructive as the uh, cat ants can be, I can I can see where you might resort to that. All right, let's get back to gardening here, and um, oh gosh, it's just, uh, it is just going to be a wonderful Saturday out there. going to talk to Lee first, and then to James. First of all, though, uh, let me talk for a moment about my friend Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. I mean, talk about a guy who uses natural products to the very best extent possible. His motto is saving the world, one organic landscape at a time. He's been at it for almost 30 years. And let me tell you, Sam just does it right first time every time. No long-term contracts. He just, uh, you get a free consultation. He'll talk to you about what your landscape needs to be its very best. He'll see how he can help you accomplish these things. I mean, nobody in this area knows more about compost tea than Sam does. Uses all the natural fertilizers, can do the deep feeding. He can do whatever it takes to give your landscape its very best chance to perform at the top level out there. He has hundreds, if not thousands, of satisfied customers. I mean, 30 years, you learn a lot, and he puts it to work every day, doing, as he says, saving the world one organic landscape at a time. Check out his website, uh, Green Grow, G-R-O-W, Green Grow Organics. And uh, if you'd like to give him a call, like to set up that free consultation, it's real simple. Just call him at 210-275-8200. 210-275-8200. That's Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. It's going to be Lee and James and Joyce. Let me do one other thing real quickly here, and that is tell you about a couple of things coming up next weekend. You know how I support the volunteer fire departments around the area. Two fun things a week from today. One of them is annual turkey shoot that the Castle Lake Ranch Volunteer Fire Department does. And uh, rain or shine, I mean, this is going to be a great event next Saturday. It's a daytime event. I believe it runs from like 9 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. So uh, it's fun family entertainment, raffle, silent auction, all sorts of things for just all kinds of good things. Everything from game feeder to uh, a couple of very good firearms. And that's next Saturday during the day. Next Saturday evening out in Kendalia. That's where I will be at the Kendalia Volunteer Fire Department's annual Mexican Food Supper. 
Let me tell you, you will come away full of very good Mexican food, and they have silent auction, raffle, all kinds of fun out there. It's just a great event. The following Saturday, two weeks from today, we're looking at Sisterdale and their big uh, Hunter's Extravaganza evening out there. Anyway, I'll talk more about all three of these things as we get closer, but I just love for you to put these things um, on your on your calendar for next weekend. All right now, let's get back to the phone lines. Good morning, Lee. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. How about yourself? Doing well. Good way to start the day. Your motto should be saving San Antonio's gardens one phone <laughs> call at a time. There you go. So, uh, I have a question. I've got some uh, zucchini squash. I've got a bottle of six pack of, of plants. And every one of them are doing well at flowering. Good. But I have seen no female flowers, all males. So how do I keep the little plants from uh, or zucchinis from falling off? Well, there's you know, with without a female flower, you know, you you can't have babies, you can't have calves unless you've got a heifer. Just the bull alone can't make it happen. And so right. what you're going to have to do is just. Pray for some warmer weather. Pray for some longer days. And, um, you know, typically in this part of Texas, we don't just go straight into super cold weather. We typically warm up, and November can be a warm month. I've spent, you know, Thanksgivings in shorts, and I've spent them sitting around an iron stove. So uh, if we can get some more warm weather, you'll start getting female flowers. Mm-hmm. Nice thing about zucchinis is that the fruit, of course, or crooknecks or patty pans, all of these things, the fruit develops so quickly. Once you do get female flowers pollinated, you've got pickable size squash in three days' time. So at this mm-hmm. point, assuming that, uh, you know, you've got good fertilizer in there, and you probably do since they're growing and at least blooming, We've just got to hope that the weather cooperates to get us some female flowers, but I don't know any one particular thing you can you can provide that's going to you know ensure that. Just uh, typically, we get bow back, we warm up, and you start getting some good squash until it really chills down. Okay, uh, is it too late to plant uh, yellow squash, crookneck squash? If you're in San Antonio or anywhere close by, yeah, because even. Uh, even the crooknecks, you're looking at about 42 to 46 days production, and we're already into December when we're that far out. So, yeah, I'm unless you've got a greenhouse, and I'm going to teach a class next week on building greenhouses and garden rooms and things like that. I believe that's next week. But um, unless you've got a greenhouse, it's it's pretty much beyond time. It's time right now to be thinking about broccoli and cauliflower and radishes and beets and carrots and chard and turnips and things like that. Okay. One more question. Uh, when is the best time to uh, prune oleanders? You know, oleanders produce some of their flowers on old growth and some of them on new growth. I like to do it in early spring. There's just not a time that you can prune that you're not going to sacrifice a little bit of flowering. I do not do it at this time of the year because pruning always stimulates new growth, which takes a while to harden off. If you prune, they start putting on new growth, and we do get a hard freeze. It really sets the plants back. I tend to do it toward the end of February, and the way I prune oleanders is I will the some of the taller, most overgrown trunks, limbs, whatever you want to call them, coming out. I will take those all the way out, and then the shorter ones that are just coming up, I won't touch them at all. 
That way I'm leaving plenty of wood to give me blooms. You know, they typically start blooming March, April, late spring. But uh, I've reduced the size without, you know, totally wiping out my spring bloom crop. Right. I've seen them. I lived in Corpus for 30 years, and I, I've seen them on Crosstown Expressways just butcher them back practically to the ground. Right. And a few months later, it seemed like they were just loaded, just beautiful with flowers. And, uh, <laughs> well, you got two things going. Two things going there. You've got a longer growing season in Corpus, and a lot of the varieties that you can grow in Corpus don't do well in the hill country because we do get cold. And uh, a lot of the more tropical oleanders, which are the ones that bloom over the longest period of times, um, you're going to lose them every now and then when we get a real cold winter up here. So um, Corpus, uh, unfortunately, we can't really quite duplicate that climate. You can cut them way, way back, but the recovery period is going to be substantially longer and the blooming substantially less than you would have down there. Okay, well, thank you for your help. I appreciate it very much. And you enjoy your oleanders. They be very careful. Do you have very many oleanders? Just one, and it's really got. I, I cut it back to about three foot every year, and it's about ten or twelve feet right now. Well, it sounds like a great plant. What I was going to tell you is, if you have several plants, I would take the time to sterilize with Clorox or alcohol or something like that your pruners when you move from one plant to the next plant because there is a new disease out that, uh, uh, of course, uh, the big growers don't have enough sense to go organic in what they do, and we do have some organic controls, uh, but there is a bacterial leaf spot that has actually caused many of the major oleander producers in Texas to totally stop growing them, and that's one way that it gets spread around is on cutting tools, uh, kind of like viruses are, so... Uh, just be sure you use including pruning shears. If you've just got one plant, obviously you're not going to transfer from one to another. But uh, if you do plant more or anything, uh, just, just you know, treat them individually because I sure don't want you to lose uh, a beautiful plant to the uh, uh, this uh, disease that's hitting so many of them. Right. Well, thanks again, Bob. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. And goodbye. All right, back to gardening to the phone lines. It's James and Joyce and Betty Lou and Fred, and James is up first. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How much rain you get? I got uh, .69. Roberta got .84 over in the eastern end of Kendall County, and uh, these lucky folks in San Antonio got 2 to 5 inches, depending on where you were. How much did you get? Man, I poured 3 inches of water (laughs) out of the gauge out. Uh, that helped with my uh, mood issues, man. I'm really in a good mood about that. <laughs> I don't think you ever get in a real bad mood, but I think we can always be a little little bit better mood, and there's nothing like a good rain to do that. I'm glad you're under a good cloud this time. Yes, sir. That's Everything's coming up. Uh, uh, the broccolis are looking good. Uh, hey, I called you with a question. Um I wanted to get a jump on the weeds in between the asparagus patches. Uh-huh. And uh, I was thinking about spring planting cereal rye. Uh, if it doesn't get, uh, I think the word's venerized with uh, a lot of uh, winter. Ver- vernalized. Vernalized. V-E-R-N. Vernalized. Vernalized. Yeah. With a lot of winter cold. 
it'll just grow up and then die. Is that correct? Well, I don't think the winter has all that much to do with it. I mean, the heat's going to wipe it out when the, uh, you know, when the hot weather arrives. But the, uh, you know, the the different rye grasses, including the cereal rye, the Elbon rye, and uh, all of them, they uh, they seem to grow in relatively mild weather, and they grow really well in the very cold winter. I've seen one or two years where people planted it a little bit too late, and we got a hard freeze immediately afterwards, and, and it hurt it. It set it back. But if it has time to get up and, uh, you know, even grow for two, three weeks before, you know, our, our more severe winter weather arrives, it's just a nice green cover crop for the winter months and I think does a lot of good things. But I don't think the vernalization really has a whole lot to do with how it's going to per- or perform or how long it lasts well it, it won't set seed if it doesn't and it depends on the variety and i would the have el, to the elbon the elbon um even you know it, it it i to the best of my knowledge it's about like fruit trees it doesn't have to be severe cold it just has to be weather below 45 and we typically get plenty of that i don't I don't ever remember a winter that I could say that uh, if you left it long enough that uh, that it didn't go to seed. Now, some years it gets so hot so quickly that it starts, you know, it doesn't have a very long period to produce that seed. But um, I, I can't remember a winter that it didn't get cold enough for it. Well, what about, uh, we're picking uh, asparagus about the middle of February. Yeah. Down here, when do you start? I usually start mid-January. Okay. Not much. So I mean, my heavier production's always in February, but I remember times pretty shortly after New Year's, I'd go out there, and and unfortunately, we you know, every now and then I'll, I'll see one that froze back or see a handful of them that came out that didn't get picked because uh, we get into that time of year. There are times it's pitch black dark when I get home and pitch black dark when I get up and go to work, and just hurts me to walk out and see some of those new shoots it froze because i didn't pick them but yeah mine mine starts pretty early but february's the best most productive month for sure yeah i was thinking about planting that elbon between the the rose and uh in february maybe early february between the rows i think you'll be fine i sure wouldn't get it mixed in or you'll end up you know having to really as you know, Elbon gets pretty tall. And, well, I need to get a head start on the weeds. They just yeah. really kicked kicked me hard uh, this year because of all the rain. Yeah. And if I've got something growing, then the weeds haven't got a real good chance on getting a head start on James. I love what uh, Rodale, they call that a smother crop instead of a cover crop. And, um, yeah, I, you well, know. What do you think I ought to get... Uh, get that seeded i've got a five road drill and i can mm-hmm. i can push plant it into the uh into the soft ground i i do it mid-november i wouldn't wait till spring i'd i go ahead and get it in in mid-november and let it let it grow and uh thicken up you know through the winter months i i i, I doubt that it's you know, trying to trying to plant it at about the same time or just before some of these weeds start coming out 
Um, the weeds grow faster than even the rye will. So I don't know. I You might try try some. I know you've got one, more than one area, but do a few feet of it uh, uh, in a couple of weeks. Do a few feet of it uh, early January. Do a few feet of it. Uh, early February, sometimes we have to do a little experimenting before we know really what to do. And uh, I wanted to spring plant it, Bob. I wanted to spring plant it and let it die naturally. Okay. Then is that that not going to be a good strategy? I didn't want to plant it in November because then it's going to grow tall and set seed. Yeah. James, it's just all going to depend on the weather. I think it's a good plan, and I think the, the seed is fairly cheap. But we need some relatively warm, sunny days for it to get up and growing. And most years, I think you'd be just fine. But uh, every now and then, we've got one of those years that winter just wants to hang on and uh, the conditions just aren't right for it to grow well. But yeah, I'd, I'd, in that case, I'd probably be planting it early February and um, get some moisture, get some sunshine on it. Uh, you ought to do just fine. If it just gets a two or three week head start on the weeds, then I've got it. But if it, you know, if I've got to do something, that I've got a really bad weed problem in that no. asparagus patch. Well, uh, your your weeds must not grow as fast as mine. My my weeds seem to grow faster than anything else in the garden, and uh, I'd I'd want at least a three week jump on it. And uh, unfortunately, the the best weather for germinating the rye is going to be also the best weather for the weeds to germinate. So um, it's yeah, I'd I'd work at getting a little out front of it. I'd 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 sure do early February because I've seen springs when it warmed up quickly and the weeds the weeds were really getting a foothold before I really had time to do a whole lot about them. I, I you know I'm totally with you. It's the weeds can be just treacherous trying to stop those blasted things, but um, uh, again, maybe a little bit more compost on top of the ground that time of year. I, I think there are a lot of natural pre-emergence, and of course they don't do anything against the perennial weeds, but if annual weeds are a problem, uh, you can head a lot of them off, with, uh, and that compost is going to be good for your asparagus bed too. Yeah, you can't have enough asparagus. I mean, asparagus and compost. I, <laughs> I, and snow peas. I'll put into that category as well. Yeah, they never make it to the kitchen. <laughs> you sound just like me. Just, okay. just don't tell my employees. They think I'm a pretty lousy grower on them, but it's just because I eat them all before they even go into the bag. And it sounds like oh, you're the same way. That's a fact. Okay, well, uh, I'm gonna try some spring planted. Uh, Elbow and Ryan, see what blows up. Record your dates and keep good records, and we'll all learn from you, James, or with you. Okay. Thanks, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. Bye. There's Joyce. Good morning, Joyce. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I do so enjoy your conversations with Farmer James. You can go a little bit more in-depth on <laughs> subjects that just aren't ordinary, but you don't think about calling, but it's so informative. Well, so when you've that. got somebody that makes his living doing something, then he's uh, uh, it's got to work. It's, he, he can't take as many, he can't do as much experimenting and take as many chances as we home gardeners are. If we have a crop failure, it's no big deal. If he has a crop failure, it's uh, it's money not in the bank, so to speak. So I I just I enjoy visiting with him. He's uh, he seems to be and and I 
I'm sure I've met him, but I could not put a face to a name. I just, uh, every time I look up at my board, I've got a big monitor screen in front of me that tells me there's Joyce, there's Betty Lou, there's Fred. And when I see James up there, I think, gosh, I wonder which James. And, oh, I think uh, it's Faye, one of our regular carlers from over toward Houston, calls him Farmer James. So uh, that that's my moniker for him as well, Farmer James. And I always enjoy a visit with him. Well, and I thank him, too, for taking the time to call. Because Absolutely. Most, most people in that position um, think they've got everything under control and don't bother, and I enjoy having the share. Well, that being said, mine are all the little hinky-dinky things. <laughs> Which are always very important. <laughs> uh, so they're going to go probably pretty fast. First one is crown of thorns. Mm-hmm. I have large-flowered, medium-flowered, and itty-bitty-flowered ones. Okay. And uh, they're not easy to cover because of the thorns or to bring in. So my question is, what can they tolerate outside? I bring them in every year, and they don't seem to be happy, and then I struggle to get them going again. What What is their tolerance? They can freeze and die at 30 degrees. At what? At 30 degrees. Oh. And okay. frost will knock the foliage off of them and may do, especially on the smaller flower varieties. But they, uh, you know, they're, they're real real warm weather plants and the thing to remember is that even though they look not a thing like it they are absolutely first cousins to poinsettias yeah they're euphorbias yeah exactly okay well i knew they couldn't take freezing i was aware of that but i didn't know whether getting down into the upper or mid 40s oh no you know they're not desert rose they're not going to complain about mid 40s they're not going to bloom quite as much but you keep them above the frost point, and they will survive. They're not going to put on a lot of growth in flowers. I mean, the that particular group of euphorbias, all the general crown of thorns, if you have them in a warm greenhouse, they can bloom 12 months out of the year. And they're going to really slow down on their blooming when they start getting that kind of uh, chill, but it's not going to hurt the plants. Now, the other thing that you always have to keep in mind is that uh, as it gets cooler, plants do not use as much water, and your pots stay wet a lot longer before they you know, dry to the point of needing water again. And as we get chillier, uh, you may find that your, your crown of thorns are staying so wet that that can be depre- detrimental to them in some years. Now, uh, we can control the water we put on them, but Mother Nature does it when she wants and how much she wants. So... Uh, I even if I were leaving them out, knowing that they that they could take lower 40s without any real damage. If we got into a wet period along with that kind of cold, I'd be getting them in just because I don't want them to stay. I, I want that soil to dry fairly quickly, and the colder it gets, the slower it's going to dry out. Well, all of that makes sense, and I realized that they would freeze. I figured 32, but anyway, that kind of thing. I hate to bring them in because I do not have a very light house. It's pretty dark, and they're Mm -hmm. never happy in either. So, okay, that's fine. I did not bring them in in this current little spell. No, I don't think there's any reason to now. And, uh, um, you know, that always seems to be our issues. Those of us that love the brightest light plants out there, you don't always have the right place to grow them, but uh, we just do yeah. the best we can. Right. Almost the same question on the snake plant. They're Sansevierias, right? Yes. And they freeze. I, I realize they freeze. But what is there? Is it about the same as for the crown? Of Almost thorns? exactly the same. But if okay. they get below freezing, they will flat turn to mush. Okay. I understand that. 
the next one is on an alocasia. I have an alocasia. It's the green and white uh, veined one, the uh, shield type plant. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's the same question. What I know, uh, I know they can't take freezing. Yes, but what, what is it? Are they also in that same grouping? Well, I think the difference on your alocasia is at least on that group. Now, I'm not talking about African mask and some of the really fancy ones. No, that's the one I am talking about. Oh, African mask. Yeah, they're they're going to be up closer to the desert rose. Um, okay. They they're not really happy below about sixty degrees. Okay. But now well, the green and white variegated one, the one that particular one. It can actually freeze back and come back out again. Most of our upright alocasias or upright elephant ears, whatever you want to call them, a light freeze can be damaging to the foliage, but they grow right out of it. That African mask is the one, and, and there are a handful of others that are just far more cold sensitive, and those are the ones I always recommend keeping in pots um, some of the other ones, and, and there's some giant ones, as I'm sure you know, but the green and white variegated one is just one of the prettiest things out there. But even if it does get a little bit nipped, it's not going to be permanently hurt. That African mask alocasia, it starts looking bad. It's uh, it's like, you know, our crazy Jerry that works with us. He, he talks about some of these uh, different diseases that show up and he says oh if you get that just call porter loring <laughs> you're not going to get beyond that so yeah if you're asking african mass gets too cold you need to call the plant equivalent of porter loring which is a compost pile okay now how what would you use I, it's been outside under my oak trees so i have it on the porch it's been protected but not in so it's coming in so what can i use to clean the uh calcium off of it <laughs> well they're professional products like green glow that can be used actually a little bit of dilute milk i thought uh, that i'd heard that I yeah heard and it. it's just it's a lactic acid calcium is uh dissolved so to speak by acidic products and i would never use the white vinegar but a dilute uh you know apple cider vinegar i'm sure would be fine for cleaning leaves on most things maybe dilute it down a little bit further, not with tap water, but with distilled water. But um, uh, milk is probably one of the most common things used. And the thing to remember, if you use any of the oiler products like the uh, Green Glow, is just keep them on the top of the leaves because the majority of the plants, other than cacti and succulents, the upper leaf surface is a coat of wax called the cuticle. And you can clean and polish that to your heart's content without hurting the plant at all. But the back side of the leaf is where the leaf breathes, and you do not want to clog it up. Okay, got it. Now, on the little sizzle frizzle, I gave one away, and they loved it, and I bought myself two, and I killed one. I did not know or didn't realize that with it being as hot as it was when I, you know, over the last month, that, that it would rot. And I evidently got water into the center of it, and before I realized it, every leaf fell over, and it was totally rotted out in the center. So, Is the bulb still hard, though? Pardon? Is the bulb still firm, even though it looks like it has a rotten spot in the center? Oh, it doesn't have a rotten spot. It's just almost totally hollow with maybe three rings of, uh, if you call them, uh, layers. Yeah, it may come right back out. Well, yep. I'm leaving it to see what happens, but I didn't realize they would rot like that in the center. They can if they get too much water in the middle or if uh, an insect of some sort takes a bite out of them. But uh, let me tell you what, Roberta has one that's like you're describing, just the whole center of it just, in effect, died away. 
And uh, but it's come back out, and it's absolutely beautiful, despite that big depression right down in the center of it. It's not as big as uh, the second one she has that didn't do that. And they're just amazing little plants. But as long as that kind of bulb part is firm, um, and if you ever see that little bit of rot starting, just a little bit of cinnamon in there. Well, I did that, but yeah. I think it was too late because I'd lost every leaf, and I kind of dug around in it, and it was just mush, mush, mush. And I cleaned it out as best I could. Put a lot of cinnamon in, and it's sitting there. We'll see what happens. I bet it comes but out the other for you. It's coming out, growing from the center. So Very it's good. Well. Do you get them regularly? The last time I was there, you didn't have any. Do you get them off and on, or just certain uh, times? We they come out of Southern California, and we don't know until that availability shows up on the fax machine. You know, and but we we buy them whenever we find them, but. Um, I I don't know when to expect the next ones. Might be next week, might be next month, might be next spring. Yeah, so just call and see if you have them. For, yeah. Because folks have just fallen in love with that. I know I have. Okay, <laughs> They're, well, sure, fun little plant. Too much of your time, Bob. You are such a wonderful person to take this time with us, and I appreciate it all so much. And give all your little babies a pet and a hug. And, and they appreciate you so much, Joyce, as do I. And we'll talk again soon. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Right now, we're going to talk to Betty Lou and Fred, and Betty Lou's up first. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a question about my oak trees. Okay. Um, I have a, a small, I'd say a medium-sized oak tree in my front yard, and I have a very, 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 very tall with a big, wide trunk oak tree in the backyard that is sandwiched between the side of my house and the fence line with the other neighbor's yard. Um, I bought this house. It's like 22 years old, so the tree is probably at least 22 years old or older. Okay. But it's super tall. And uh, anyway, my HOA told me I have to have the front tree, oak tree, live oak tree, trimmed because it's hanging more than uh, – it's it's below the 15-foot from the street level high – uh, so it needs to be trimmed. So I'm having a tree trimmer come over and uh, basically shape and shorten the canopy of the front tree. And I'm wondering about the back tree because the, t- the tree is very tall and so close to both houses that I had it trimmed last year, but it's already grown back close to where our chimneys are mm-hmm. at the top of uh, each house. My question uh, is how, and I don't have deep pockets to keep trimming these trees every year. My question, Bob, is, and the tree trimmer is permitted, and he's done this, and he knows he needs to seal after uh, pruning these trees. Um, But So two-part question. Number one, he says that the rule is to seal anything that is one half inch in diameter and the limbs cut or bigger and i told him no i think it's all of it you're exactly right right. you're Um, right he's not okay and the second question is you know how short can he trim the tree to where it's healthy and pretty so that i don't have to keep doing it and in the backyard where it keeps growing out to where, I mean, it doesn't really provide a lot of shade for me that I know of. Can I just have him cut that tree down, just eliminate it? So that's what I'm thinking. That's that's strictly up to you. Um, It sounds like Mm -hmm. this guy is more of a tree trimmer than an arborist. Um, Yes. You might want to have an arborist take a look and tell you what the options are. 
Um, I can tell you, you never want to leave a stub sticking out there. There needs to be some, you know, thought as to the, you know, as to which limbs are taken out, which limbs are left behind. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, but there's occasionally there's just a tree in the wrong place. And you do not want a tree rubbing on your soffit, rubbing on your shingles, rubbing on your chimney. And if this tree Mm -hmm. is just in the wrong place, it you have to look at how major pruning you would have to do on it and sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, removal is necessary i again was talking to my county commissioner and friends up in uh in uh, bernie and i'm there's a tree i'm going to recommend that they take totally out because of some long-term potential consequences but uh you know again if you want to call a real arborist david vaughn or somebody like that and get them to tell you what your options are you can certainly do David's that. La- what is David's last name? Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-A-N. Okay. He's, okay. Uh, he I worked will. with a real good Arbor, Arbor Care company, and uh, he decided when he reached a certain age that uh, he would retire and just do consulting. And he's, I don't know, he, in my opinion, he's the best in the business. Uh, we don't agree on everything, but we agree on a lot of things. And uh, you can uh, you can just Google David Vaughn Arbor Care or something like that and get his number, and uh, he will he will come by and tell you what your options are. But uh, to the ceiling, I you know it's just it's you're playing Russian roulette. Uh, people trim all the time and never have an oak wilt problem. People trim one time without ceiling, and if there's a red oak around producing the spore mats. Um, then you can get oak wilt introduced into the tree. Now, we're finding different things, and I won't take time to go into them right now because we're getting close to news and I need to get Fred in. But and, we, and, 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 and before we get off the phone, I need to know your, your advice about how short can they cut the canopy so my tree in the front yard is still pretty, but I don't have to worry about trimming so often. Okay, the, go ahead. <laughs> the thing about the tree in the front yard is don't ever take away more than 50% of the foliage at any one time. Beyond that, oh, okay. beyond that, yeah. trim it as, as heavily as you like. Okay. And but, what were you saying, though? Um, you know, just every now and then, there's a tree that just can't be um, can't be reduced with you know at a reasonable point. Sometimes it's just a tree in the wrong place, and in that case, it just needs to go. But uh, you need an arborist to make that determination, not a tree trimmer. And uh, um, best one I know is David Vaughn, but um, anyway, I hope that gives you information you need. Let me let me do get Fred in yeah. here before we go to news. Uh, good morning, Fred. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm good. Good. Yeah, I'm, I'm headed down Highway 16, so if I lose you, feel free to hang up on me. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try to hang in there. Well, uh, give me your question. Uh, yeah, I got a couple of things. You know, I'm I'm retired and new at this gardening thing, and I'm having trouble with, like tomatoes. The only thing I can grow where I can actually get the fruit off of is a sweet 100s. Okay. Everything else, you know, I can get the flowers on it, and then, you know, I can go back out there the next day, and they just, the flowers are dried up, and I get nothing off of them. I think your timing, either you don't have enough sunlight, or your timing is off, because larger fruited tomatoes don't set fruit when the nights are too warm, and they don't set fruit when the nights are too cool. So a lot of folks that plant a little late or a little early um that has a great deal of influence in tomato production and all tomatoes need absolutely full sun if you ever near over near our place shades of green we've got a little uh 
free handout we can give you that tells you the time that we recommend, the approximate planting date, spring and fall. Sweet 100 is a cherry tomato, and they don't pay any attention to nighttime temperatures. So Sun Gold, Sweet 100, Black Cherry, Juliet, those are all ones you're going to be very successful with. But if you get your timing down right, you ought to be able to grow any tomato you want. Okay, yeah, and I think you hit it because I do not have full sun. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I've got it planted next to the house, but it's the way I, I've got 120 trees in two acres. Well, and so there's only <laughs> one area that has full sun, and it's over my septic system, so I choose not to use that. Well, one. that would not be uh, as long as you don't have an aerobic system spraying on it. Nothing wrong with uh, planting the garden on top of that, but it's going to either take some tree trimming or moving out there to do well with tomatoes or peppers or a lot of other things. So. All right, it is eight minutes after eight o'clock on a really nice, cool, beautiful Saturday morning in South Texas. What's it like in North Texas today, Mr. Dirt Doctor? Well, it's calmer than it was last Sunday. I got to spend uh, from about 6.30 in the evening until 4.30 the next uh uh, morning at uh, in two airports, one in Topeka, Kansas, and one in Lubbock, oh. trying to get back <laughs> to Dallas. I tell you, air travel, when it goes smoothly, is a good thing, but lately it seems like it's just there's been there've been a lot of little glitches along the way <laughs> well, I, we had a big glitch we had uh, e3 uh, tornado exactly. that destroyed north north dallas so yeah. it, it was um, it was good not to fly back into that but it was interesting because the uh, i left out of kansas city kansas city must be the worst airport in the world there's no restaurants <laughs> there at all and they close what few there are <laughs> <laughs> little ones were closed, so none of us on the plane got to eat anything. Everything was closed in Lubbock, so it was a, it was a grind of a time to get back. Well, I looked at the at the path of that tornado and it was looked like your office and your home were both spared, but I heard that North Haven Gardens just got demolished. Completely destroyed. It's going to be interesting to see what they do because that place has a very unique a permit to be there. Right. Uh, they couldn't uh, build anything. They had to just stay with the lean-to kind of original structure, you know, and the floors, why the floor uh, slopes like it does mm-hmm. and all that. So it's going to be really interesting to see what they're allowed to do, uh, much less what, you know, they uh, think us, uh, decides to do with the place. Oh. And we had a big uh, Home Depot completely destroyed. I had yeah. the most interesting one. Doug, it missed Doug's house, my business partner. Right. missed his house by a block. Wow. And uh, knocked the power out there and everything. And he said that his neighbor neighbor's house was completely, they know, was completely destroyed. And their two cars uh, were missing. Uh. I, I, I assume they finally found them. But uh, right after the storm, they were gone. So it... It was a uh, violent storm, to say the least. But, you know, the most interesting thing about it, uh, of all, not one person was killed. And that's what I was just about to say. That's it's just nothing short of miraculous. Oh, yeah, because it, it destroyed a bunch of houses. Somebody said that it was probably because everybody had such good warning about it. But even if you had good warning, first of all, there's a lot of people that aren't going to pay any attention to the warning. And then secondly, there, you know, even if you get in a closet or in a tub like a lot of people did or 
one of my golf buddies that missed his house just barely, too. They just got in a hall in the middle of the house and had some damage. But even if you do that, you know, you can end up getting hurt. But it's unbelievable that yeah. nobody got killed. I, I think if you were going to be caught in a tornado, Topeka, Kansas would have been a better place to be because those folks have storm shelters and they're used to dealing with that kind of thing. But, yeah, we had the same thing a couple of years ago. Tornado missed the nursery by a block. And uh, it just just makes you so thankful. But to see that kind of destruction, and I don't think there were even any major injuries, which something hit in the middle of the night, that is just, just very fortuitous. Yeah. It's unbelievable. They're still, you know, shut down and rebuilding and uh, getting started rebuilding up there. But it, it, was, uh, it was a bad one. When they were first talking about it, talking about it being a, EF one or two, mm-hmm. and then you see that destruction look like more like a EF four or five, but yeah. they're officially calling it EF three. So, well, and bad enough. that's uh, on the subject of North Haven. I happen to be talking to one of the brokers that we use on bulbs and things. Uh, knows them very well, and she said that you know again permits allowing and everything. They were planning to totally rebuild and she said they had not even canceled their fall orders they're going to do their best to stay in business oh. keep the doors open and rebuild and you know dealing with cities is just a whole nother issue and let's hope that doesn't pres- you know throw up a big roadblock i was concerned because they're sitting out there on such valuable property that they would just say oh you know at time to go kind of like bobble links and some of my other favorite open spaces in north dallas just got turned into subdivisions but supposedly at least uh, she told me that she'd talk to the owners and it was their intention to stay there for all the people in north Dallas that have come to really rely on them over the past what 60 years or something they've been in business well it'll be interesting to see if they can make it to be back open by uh, spring of course spring for organic gardeners and they're not totally organic. They they do both, but yeah. spring begins in January. I so was going to say, I think it begins in away. I think it begins in November because uh, <laughs> I tell people all the time the organic fertilizer and things that we're putting out now, you know, it's going to increase the winter hardiness of your plants and it's going to help things get off to a much earlier start. So I, I'm not sure it ever really ends, but <laughs> it, uh, it there's sure plenty to do. That's for certain. We had another interesting event, and that is the big tree on Armstrong Parkway at the end that they've, you know, put Christmas lights yep, in for yep. forever and ever was uh, taken down. And the uh, lady that was doing the story on it tried to call me, and I missed her. I told her I'd be glad to talk, and and she called, and I missed missed the call. I was busy doing something. But it might be good that I didn't talk to her because what they put in the story was that the official uh, story about what happened was that it died of old age. Uh, 150 years old didn't die of old age. (laughs) No, that's a that's. So I probably would have I probably would have stuck my foot in my mouth saying (laughs) what I really think about probably what happened. It's. uh, it's too bad um, one of the local uh, tree companies was involved in it, and so I guess it's best for it to just go away with that story. Yeah. And was it, what kind of tree was it? Was it an oak it or a pecan? Pecan, yeah. Well, you know, <clears throat> don't get me started. on. Huh? to call 
dying of old age at 150 accurate than the one in Weatherford's 850. Years I was going to ask if you had an as- estimate on the age of that one. Yeah, no, it's a it's a youngster by comparison, but uh, there's so many so many stupid things that people do with the products they use around them, the ways they trim them, the way they bury their root flares. You can you can certainly shorten a tree's life a great deal, and a lot of the so-called experts out there just flat don't have a clue when it comes to uh, when it comes to what to do. But uh, back up for a second and tell us about Topeka. How was the event? Oh, about the same as usual. They um, it's going to be interesting to see what they do long term because I think a lot of people have been to uh, one or more, and uh, maybe there's a certain percentage that think you know I've seen heard all this i don't need to continue to do it because one of the things they're going to do that's new they're going to have one of their events at joel saladin's ranch now that'd be interesting <clears throat> yeah i think it'll be real good it's going to cost a whole lot more to go and it'll be, you know, be a smaller group but i'm sure that uh, they'll sell it out and that'll be a, a successful deal he hadn't been to too many of the regular ones uh in the last year or so so I, I guess that's the move they're making there but it's always fun and uh interesting to see the people and all that kind of thing i took my art and uh showed off some of it we didn't uh it was interesting we sold several pieces when we went to the uh uh belton one last year yeah yeah and we didn't sell any at this one. And people, in fact, the only interest I got was out of some of the artists that were there, and we had some good conversations. People asking about techniques and talking about you know style and technique and things mm-hmm. like that. But uh, the uh, clientele was uh, not there uh, interested in buying anything. It may have been that in Belton there were more people that knew me personally and heard me talking about it more so than uh, in uh, Topeka. But anyway, we continue to. You know, try to get the information out there so people know what we're doing, see it, and have some conversation about the stuff. Well, it would be fun if they will, you know, move. And and I realize it takes an awful lot money-wise, time-wise, talent-wise to do this. But there are a lot of areas that I think that would, would be great at hosting it if it's financially practical. I mean, I could, I don't know if they've ever done one in the Houston area. I don't know about San Antonio. I don't know that it would have the drawing power, but I'd love to see one in the Dallas area per se. And when you've got as big a metroplex area as that, uh, you're going to bring in people that have an interest. You're going to bring in people that have no clue, and you're going to bring in people that have the money to invest in uh, in some good art and some things like that. But there, there are another number of venues around the country that I I would think that they would do well to get in and just expose people, um, you know, to organics. Uh, the Mountain West is would be kind of a tough nut because of the lack of population, but, man, do I ever get frustrated when I get to talking to people who are just so set in their ways and see nothing at all wrong with uh, agriculturalists. It's always been, in their mind, with the Roundup and the Paraquat and, you know, all the stuff that uh, we just just well just not necessary and i saw saw this week that uh, even the country of thailand is getting ready to ban roundup paraquat and chlorpiferous um and citing you know the impact on human health and recognizing that uh, those are things that and and they're they're 
you know, getting a lot of pushback over there because they say that 40% of Thailand's economy is based around agriculture, and they've got the same problem we do. These guys say, oh, we just can't, we just can't exist if we don't get to use all this stuff. And uh, uh, news for you there, you not only exist, you do better than ever if you get away from that stuff. But that was, that yeah, was interesting news. problem, that's, that's right. Yeah. Well, Mother Earth's uh, business model, uh, ten, I guess 100%, is, is kind of smaller-scale cities mm-hmm. outside of larger metropolitan areas, kind of like the Belton right. thing, and uh, where they have a big agricultural center, you know, with big yeah. arenas and things like that. So I don't know if it would work in, in big, actually have it in big cities or, or not. I don't have any idea if that's a possibility. But anyway, it's, uh, it's just one of the many... Uh, venues that we have we've got another hemp deal coming up that's going to be in albuquerque this is going to be more of a uh in, in a group of people invited in that are specific uh, growers and that sort of thing and i'm i'm the main speaker and there's going to be some other people involved and that's going to be coming up in a month or so I think. really so i'll I don't even know the details on it, but I'll let you know uh, something next week maybe on it. Well, that sounds like fun. Albuquerque will be a fun venue. It can get pretty cold. I gave a an orchid talk in Albuquerque one time in January, and that's about as cold as I've been in my life. It was about 4 degrees or something like that. But November should be a, a beautiful time of year out there, maybe a little bit past the Aspens. But, uh, um, gosh, sitting down there in front of the mountains, that, that's a, it's a pretty part of the world. We're starting to get a little bit of fall color here showing up uh, already, and it's going to be interesting to, to see if it stays cold like this and the sun comes back out. We may have some fairly decent fall color. We've finally gotten some good rains the past couple of weeks. Uh, San Antonio proper got three to four inches a couple of days ago. We didn't get nearly that much in the hill country, but we are getting some more moisture back in the soil. And we've been down right about 40 degrees in the hill country the past two mornings, so like you say, it may be setting up to give us a good year. We've even had a little frost here, really, kind of north of uh, of Dallas, out in Denton and McKinney, and in that area, they've had a little bit of frost already. So, getting pretty close. <laughs> that old calendar's pushing on toward November. Uh, the herb market last week, I did as you ask, ask uh, several chefs and growers down there about the Oja Santa. And okay. uh, they all said the same thing, said we love it as something to grow or something to cook in, but none of them, none of the ones that I talked to at least, uh, actually thought that it was a good thing to put in for consumption. They said it can impart flavor, but uh, they, they're they kind of like you were saying, that uh, probably not something you want to you wanna consume a whole lot of. So that, that, was, uh, that was the feedback that I got from them. Yeah, that makes sense. And comfrey probably, I don't think, ought to ever be used in cooking or teas. The uh, uh, Odina Branham, who I've you know worked with on the uh, the herb book that I did, she actually recommended using it in tea. Really? You know, human consumption. But I I never was comfortable with that, and I don't think too many of the herbalists would would agree with that. I think it's a little bit a little bit too rough, too toxic. Yeah, and uh, we have used it, in effect, to make a tea, but not for consumption. Uh, one of Roberta's puppy dogs, a former puppy dog, had a real problem with hot spots and skin issues. Yeah, it's great for that. And, yeah, she used to basically steep 
uh, the comfrey in that water and then keep in the refrigerator for some time, just a little spray bottle. But it sure did work well, uh, just uh, uses a spritz, you know, externally on uh, on hot spots and all. I think Dr. Kirby has done some of that, too, and uh, was just really, really good results, but uh, not to be taken internally. It's also really good to go in the compost, and I'm not sure exactly what it does. That's something I need to uh, research a little bit more. But there's a lot of people that uh, agree with that, that uh, and and recommend that you have it growing near your compost area, and you just throw some in the compost from time to time. It, it seems to have something uh, beneficial about biological activity or something in the uh, in the compost. Huh? I've not more heard so that. Than than other plants and exactly how that works i don't have any idea i that's <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't have a clue on that either it's uh it, it it just you know it's so just almost miraculous in what it does as far as healing but what would be in it as a breakdown product <laughs> that that'd be a good question to ask i'm sorry well, sorry malcolm related the way it, it uh, detoxifies a venom uh, buy it. You know, I've heard you talk. I'm pr- pretty sure you've got some uh, uh, people that have uh, used it for brown recluse bites, yeah. like I have, and it's yeah. it's pretty amazing. You don't even end up with a scar if you if you get it on there pretty early in the uh, event. Well, our our mutual friend, Dr. Kirby, the best vet I've ever known, he came into the studio with uh, with a uh, recluse bite right on his wrist, and he oh, had wow. been. He had been to the dermatologist and who said, I've done everything I can do. I've abraded as much tissue as I can. And uh, Dan started using, I started taking him fresh comfrey leaves every other day uh, to the clinic. And he was crushing it and putting it on. Because he's used it on animals in, in different ways, uh, compounding it with lanolin and things like that to actually make a salve out of it. But uh, he was, you know, he was, is like you've talked about, two weeks later, uh, the wound was healed, and I think don't think there's any sign of a scar. Uh, one of my former, you know, my guys in here, if I really like them, like Don and Chris, I, I call them my engineers, and if they're not so hot, they, they become board ops. And one of my former <laughs> board ops came in, and, you know, he pulls up the, the cuff on his jeans one day, and he said, what do you think this is? And he's got an ulcer the size of a, you know, quarter on his leg, and I said, that's a brown recluse bite. You need to get yourself to the doctor and get that looked at. And he said, I ain't going to no doctor, blah, 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 which was kind of his M.O. But anyway, I brought him brought him comfrey and got him applying it, and he, he totally healed in less than a month with no sign of a scar on it. But uh, it, it is truly amazing. And, uh, of course, I, for thank goodness, knock on wood, I've not dealt with recluse, but you know, I I get into fire ants. I get my occasional wasp sting or scorpion sting or whatever. And I just, I, I think that Dr. Kirby says it, one of the big things that it does is really increases the blood flow, really increases the circulation around the area, which promotes healing and seems to take the pain away. But all I know is this sure works against some, some of life's little pains. Well, that's probably exactly what it does. And maybe the there's something related there about how it helps with the compost pile. It supposedly helps bones heal and mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of things, and that the the blood flow increasing the blood flow is probably how that works. Uh huh. Uh, that's that's interesting, and and you know I always think about that this time of year because that white eupatorium, the one they call bone set, 
Uh, just I've got a whole hillside that, that tends to come into bloom of that. That's another remarkable thing, something that people use for bone healing for many, many years before the advent of the same thing. Yeah, too. It yeah. Helps blood circulation. Well, let me, Plants are interesting things. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and the old Chinese herbalists knew a lot more than a lot of our modern doctors do about different things. Uh, do you know if there's anything, have you heard anything new on the market? I continue to get questions about cut ants, and they have never been a problem for me. They don't come around the areas that I cultivate, but talked to uh, a number of people and had a caller this morning was asking about something new on the market called Antics Plus or something like that. But then he said, well, you have to have an applicator's license to put it out. And I said, well, it doesn't sound like anything I'd want to be using. But anything new or different uh, in dealing with uh, leafcutter ants? No, not really. I, uh, I've had some pretty good uh, re- uh, results, people reporting results, just using the you know, the normal things that we recommend, including the fine-textured cedar hmm. uh, applied in the uh, trails, you know, that they're making, and, huh. and it just irritates the heck out of them, and they tend to go somewhere else. Uh, the the one thing that I've had uh, reported twice where people got really good control, uh, eliminated them, was building a dam around the entire uh, mound area, which, as you know, can be really big. <laughs> yeah, 10 or 12 feet. It. It. Huh. Uh, building a dam and flooding it, and if you, uh, you put some sulfur in it like you recommend and, or, you know, the spinosad or something else like that, it would probably work even better. But, uh, yeah, you've got to be pretty dramatic to wipe out the entire uh, colony. Yeah. One thing interesting that came up um, in... Topeka, one of the guys uh, listening to my talk on uh, insect, they were, they were very, I did the tree talk first mm-hmm. and then did the natural uh, insect and disease control second, and we had good turnout at both of them, but one of them, one of the people that came said he had a tip on squash bug control. I said, fine, what, what is it? I'll encourage people to give us tips. Some of right. the best things right. I, I recommend came <laughs> that way. And he said uh, that he used hair, and he said he had tried human hair, and he had also tried uh, dog and cat, and he said they all work. And he just t- takes human hair and puts it in the in the soil around the plants, and he said he never has uh, squash. I think he may have said squash vine borers and squash bugs both. Yeah. I got to thinking about it, and I said, well, I'll give that a try. We'll pass it on to my, our research staff out there, <laughs> the, the thousands, and yeah. uh, see if we get any feedback. But you know that might work, and you know why it might work is that that would be real high in uh, maybe available silica. Uh-huh. And that's why I've also had people report to me that uh, diatomaceous earth, natural diatomaceous earth worked into the bed preparation, eliminated the problem, too. So there might be something to that. Silica is the most plentiful mineral on Earth, but it ain't necessarily available to plants. You know, right? So yeah. that may be a good tip. Well, that is real interesting. Well, plus hair, hair is a you know it's good fertilizer. Uh, in fact, I know there, there have been a, a couple. Of, yeah, lots of protein in it. But uh, yeah, the the squash bugs are a nuisance. The squash vine borers just can totally you know wipe out your wipe out your squash crop and. Uh, We've, you know, we've actually injected stems with BT and things like that. But man, if if hair, especially 
especially pet hair. <laughs> Having two labs <laughs> and one golden in the family, so to speak. Pet hair is uh, available in abundant quality quantities around Shades of Green. So uh, uh, we might just do that, and I guess we'll have to try it if it works. Um, I, you know, I know most vets have you know grooming services associated with them. It should be should be something we could pretty easily come up with so yeah that'd be worth a try this spring that's every barber shop out there we all need to uh, give it a try use it in some areas and not in others and see what kind of results we get because if that works that's a big deal because probably same with you one of the most common questions i get is you know how do you control squash bugs and squash vine borers? right right well, by and the it, way, uh, did you and I talk about this, or did somebody? Else, I think somebody else asked me about. It. There's a squash called a trombone squash, trombocetta, trombocina, or something like that. Um, yeah, and I've I've grown it, and uh, it's an interesting squash. Um, and it's it's kind of like the uh, little tatumis. It is a small leaf, and uh, not much of. Uh, not nearly as much problem with the vine borers. What what specifically have you learned about it? Well, that's that's exactly what uh, came to me. This caller said that they had planted it and loved the taste of it, and it had no problem with the uh, with the pests at all. And uh, so I said, well, that's great, and I I need to give it a try. And I wondered if you had. Yeah. It also, uh, I also told him the same thing uh, that Tatumi was also in that category, and to give it a shot. Not only are the little green uh, tatumi squashes delicious yeah. to eat, uh, but if you let them go to maturity, they form the cutest little uh, orange pumpkins <laughs> you've ever seen. So it's a decorative thing as well. Yeah, we, they call them calabacita down here, and they're useful. The one thing I'll tell you about the trombocino, um, it, it likes to climb. It, uh, I find that to get really quality squash from it, and one of the really neat things about it is, and it makes a big squash, but you can harvest it even after it's gotten some size to it, and it's still good flavor, still very tender and all. You know, so many squash, you miss them one or two days, and you've got a baseball bat out there that you can't do anything with, and even the cows don't go crazy over it. But uh, that trombocino, we found you could pick them really pretty young and if you you could actually let them get almost to full maturity and treat them like a winter squash uh so it it's a very versatile plant but it is vigorous it does take some room and my experience was that it did it did best where i could let it grow up over some cattle panels okay that's a good tip well i'll give that a, a shot this next season I guess we better uh, ease on so you can uh, finish talking to some of your uh, research staff there. <laughs> Lots of wonderful people. I this this is just it's always fun to do. And Howard, I have to tell you, I just uh, a week doesn't go by that somebody doesn't tell me how much they enjoy our our talks together, and uh, we just certainly do appreciate it. And um, Oh, a few other things to share with you, but we will do that sometime in the near future. In the meantime, um, so glad you you avoided the the whirling winds, and you know, pass along our our thoughts and best wishes to anybody in the industry and anybody you know that uh, was harmed um, financially or physically. Thank God nobody was hurt or killed badly, but uh, doesn't mean the economic impact won't be won't be severe. But anyway. 
Glad everybody came through. I appreciate that. I enjoy it always uh, uh, as well, and we'll see you next week. Look forward to it, Howard. Thank you so much. (laughs) Goodbye. Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor. Phone lines are open for the last 25 minutes of the show here. Time to take probably three or four more calls. But uh, if you've not discovered DirtDoctor.com, you're missing out on the best source for gardening information on the Internet. And, of course, I highly recommend joining the Organic Club of America it's where or Organic Club of America, where you have access to uh, some of the additional things, sort of the backside, as we like to say, uh, of uh, of DirtDoctor.com that even gives you more different uh, opportunities to learn and all. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be Bill and Mike and Sid, and Bill's up first. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Bob. It's uh, nice speaking with you. Well, thank you. Uh, I've got... Uh, Two quite large evergreen sumacs. They've been in the ground four years. They're in good soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, noticed about a month ago that that uh, the side of one of them uh, started to turn brown, and it was the bad death where the leaves turn brown and stay on the branches. Right. So uh, this week I went in to clean it out, and I it. Uh, there's a main trunk that comes out of the ground, and about three or four inches above that main trunk, it branches into four almost, uh, they're so thick they almost look like trunks. Mm-hmm. What, one of those is where all the death was. Okay. And I went down and cleaned it out at ground level, and down toward the bottom of, of that branch of the trunk, there's some kind of black, sticky substance. Okay. And I, I'm wondering if that's, uh, what caused that branch to die? And no, I, I need to worry I, about it. On, I, no. I think that that is what the branch produced as it died. Uh, this this occurred late spring, early summer, or no, about about a month ago. Okay, I my suspicion on evergreen sumac is uh, all the all the wet weather we had spring and early summer. They simply okay. don't handle that. They're even the flame sumac suffers, but evergreen sumac, if they stay too wet, uh, they have real issues. And sometimes, you know, it's an interesting thing on shrubs and trees both. Uh, the roots on one side of a plant really control what happens to the limbs on one side of a plant. And for whatever reason, my suspicion is that that part of the root system simply stayed too wet. Of course, what actually happens is there's lacks of oxygen in the soil, mm-hmm. and you had a lot of root damage on that side of the plant, and the plant responded by the major limb that was on that side of the plant died back. The good news is that it's not contagious. It's not spreading, and if the, you know, quite obviously, once June came along, the rains ended, and if the rest of that plant looks good, Chances are it's going to continue to grow, and, uh, you know, it's and, and the evergreen sumac is just a really neat plant uh, of our native plants. I think it's one of the best, but, man, if it's in a spot that ever stays too wet, uh, you'll see. You're, you're lucky the whole thing didn't die as much rain as we had this spring, but that would be my guess as to where the problem originated. Perfect. Good news. Thank you, Bob. Very good. Anything else uh, we can help with? That's it for today. 
Very good. We'll stop by the nursery when you're in town, and I'll have a couple other things to share with you. Don and I were just uh, discussing off the air some some good humor, but probably better not take the time to do it right now. So look forward to seeing you guys sometime soon. And I might have one or two for you. (laughs) Always welcome, Bill. Thank you so much. Give Chris a hug for me. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye. All right. Next up is going to be Mike. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Bob. Uh, I know you're feeling fine, so I won't bother asking you. <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. Yeah. Uh, hey, this stuff uh, I just got uh, was listening to you and uh, Dirt Doctor about the comfrey. Right. Uh, are you, uh, your doctor? Let's see. The, the veterinarian is he mixing it with lanolin? No. Well, he's he has mixed it with lanolin to use on some of his four-legged patients with skin issues. When he was treating his recluse bite, I guess that's been close to two years ago. No, he was just crushing the leaves and rubbing it on, which is what I do for fire ant bites or scorpion sting or whatever. But uh, compounding it into something, you know, that that somebody wouldn't just lick right off. Uh, I know he's I know he's done some things with it. He um, hasn't done a heck of a lot with it, but I remember two or three cases where he found he got some pretty good results doing that. Yeah, I, I just I'm using it on dogs. That's what I'm. Yeah. yeah it, but I'm the problem is trying to get it on them so they don't lick it off. Yeah. 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 And like I said, uh, my business partner, one of her former, I guess it was one of her goldens, uh, had a real issue with hot spots, and she would make a tea out of it. She would boil water and then steep some of the comfrey leaves in it, and then use that just in a little sprayer and just spray on the hot spot and produce real good results as far as reducing the inflammation and, uh, you know, getting getting the regrowth on the skin and hair in that area. So lots of different ways you can, you can use it. Uh, I just, I don't think any of us recommend doing it internally, but, uh, no. and that you're always, but it's, it's something if the dog licks a little bit of it off, it's not likely to be a problem. But when you're just kind of spritzing it onto the skin, it dries so quickly. In fact, I guess if you had a dog that was a real licker, you could, uh, um, spray it on, let it sit for a few minutes, and then towel it off. Uh, we we actually have a sign in the office with our, for our two labs that says, Caution, Dog Can't Hold Its Liquor, L-I-C-K-E-R. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, anyway, that's 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 what, uh, that's a couple of the ways that we've used it with good success. Okay, I, I guess this time of year they're probably at the, at the nursery, so with the, the full plants. You know, I'd have to look and see. I know we have had a fairly good supply, but a lot of the growers put so much effort into the herb market last week, uh, it always creates a little bit of a shortage. But I imagine you'll find them, but I won't. if, if you're going to make a drive just to get that one plant call first. Oh, no, I'm down here in Taft. Yeah, yeah. Down towards the coast, so I'm not, I'm not coming up to San Antonio, <laughs> but I'm, I'll go back into Corpus. So. Well, go back into Corpus or... Uh, uh, you know, head up and see, Victoria, yeah. yeah, Victoria, somewhere like that. But yeah, it's it's very good, and uh, it's kind of a pretty plant to have in the garden. In addition, okay, that's all my questions, Mike. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Right now, let's talk to Sid. Good morning, Sid. Well, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, we certainly enjoy your show every Saturday morning. It's the highlight of the week. Well, you're very kind. I sincerely appreciate it. Uh. I, I was very interested in your talk about the the, the hair in the garden. Uh-huh. And I I thought about doing that many years ago, but then I got to thinking, you know, you don't really know 
where that hair came from. You know it came from somebody's head, but you don't know what kind of drugs they might have been taking. Sure, sure. And so I had concerns about what effect that would have on the garden. Well, the one thing about pharmaceuticals um, of the sort that could be taken and incorporated into hair, because hair is an amazing thing, but they are red, rapidly biodegradable. You know, we've got issues where they're being dumped into lakes and things like that through, uh, you know, the effluent out of our treatment plants. But when you're putting something like that into the soil, uh, we've got microbes out there that are going to digest it, you know, before it has a chance to really become a problem. And I really don't, I think the chances are close to zero that it would be taken up into any vegetables or anything like that. I'm like you, I probably wouldn't use it where I'm growing root crops, but uh, as a as a general fertilizer product, uh, anything that's above the ground like squash or cucumbers or tomatoes, I think the chance of anything winding up in the fruit is, is very, very minimal. And um, uh, again, it's always a very interesting question, but I have I have more faith in soil microbes uh, against products like that. There are some, you know, these uh, sulfonated real herbicides and things like that that the microbes can't touch. But most anything that's uh, pharmaceutical, I think you'll find is broken down pretty quickly in the soil. Not necessarily in the water, but our soil microbes uh, work pretty quickly against it. And I have another question. I know it's time to, to put uh, compost in the garden. Yes, sir. Uh, but the the thing that I have concerns about in buying bulk compost, uh-huh. is I got a batch uh, about three years ago, I guess, and it ended up having a whole lot of of uh, weedy things coming up out of it after mm-hmm. we put it down. And uh, I don't know if I just got a a, a batch that. It ended up like that, or is that something that uh, can happen? You know, sometimes um, the compost gets blamed when the actual occurrence was that the compost improved the soil to the point that the weeds sprouted and they were already there. Um, and uh, I, I just I've seen two or three times where people you know, felt that the compost had brought in a lot of weed seeds. But when we looked carefully at the compost, nothing was growing in the compost alone, but it was making it possible for some other seeds that had lain dormant for a long time. Now, most seeds, the compost works as a pre-emergent against them, but um, uh, it's, it's possible that you had some material come in, but the heat that is generated in uh, the static row compost piles that all the big producers are using now the chances of having many weed seeds in there is pretty low, but the chance that it may activate some seeds that are already in your soil is just a real real possibility. Okay, well, that, that's a good thought. Uh, well, I appreciate your show, and I just wish it was a little bit longer. <laughs> Sid, I'll do it again tomorrow morning from 8 till 11, and hope you're able to listen. 